Great to have you back. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Toronto, and we welcome you to our new year. We welcome you to our church. If you are new, we're so glad you're here. Uh, if you're investigating the faith or are curious about the faith, we are especially happy that you have come to grace us. Um, we uh, take time every week to look at a passage of Scripture and to reflect upon it, and we're going to do that now. We're starting a series on 1 John, and the verses that we're going to look at this morning are about to show up on your screen, and they are in your bulletin. I will read them now. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are not new to us, you know that normally at this time of year, we take a couple of weeks and we share a vision of our church. We remind ourselves about our core values and our core passions as a church. But this year, we have felt that the epistle of 1 John actually encapsulates all of our desires and longings for who we want to be as a church. And so we're just going to go through it in depth over the next few months. When I was a newish Christian in my mid-20s, less about five years into my Christian faith, and about to finish up uh, practicing law, I was struggling. I was a lay leader in my church. I helped run their young adults. I helped volunteer in their youth ministry. I was looked to as an emerging leader, but I was struggling. I struggled with anger, pride, lust, envy. They didn't seem to be going away. I was confused, and I was discouraged. I thought after several years of being a Christian, these things would have faded away by now. Why was I still struggling with them? What was wrong with me? Most of the symptoms had disappeared from my behavior, so I looked much better on the outside than I felt and was on the inside. Deeply stained with these issues, I felt. Deeply rooted in my heart, they seemed to be. And so I began to wonder, do I really know God like I think I do and like I tell others and they think I do? Is, is Jesus really in me? If so, why am I struggling so deeply? Or is it all just a fake? Have I bought a lie since law school when I became a Christian? So when a Christian conference came to Toronto with speakers that many of you have never heard of, but I'll name them, R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson, I went to it because I wanted answers. And I remember waiting just as the morning session ended and a lunch break was breaking, and I stalked out one of the speakers. His name was R.C. Sproul. And R.C.'s kind of a brusque, impatient man, so he was leaving the stage, and I came up to him as his entourage grabbed him because he had a lunch meeting. 
And I started to talk to him. I said, RC, RC, can I just ask you a couple questions? And he said, young man, can't you see I've got a lunch meeting? And I said, I got a bigger problem than your lunch meeting. <laughs> and then he stopped and he looked at me. And I shared with him because it wasn't going away. And I thought it should go away. Many of you are where I was. Your sin makes you wonder if you're really a Christian. Your doubts, especially in light of the skeptical nature of our culture, make you doubt whether you really know God very well. And if you're curious about Christianity, you actually have these questions and these doubts more deeply. So welcome to a passage that addresses these questions, these struggles, and these doubts. First John will tell us, among other things, as a book, that true Christians, A, struggle with sin, B, seek to obey Jesus, and C, learn to love unlovely people. Those are three of the central truths of the book that it will teach us. But here in these opening verses, John wants to set a foundation. He wants you to know three things. The gospel is true. The gospel will save. The gospel does unite you to God. It is true. It will save. It unites. We're going to look at these three now. Firstly, it is true. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's all he says. This letter is unlike any other New Testament book. It has no opening salutation or greeting. These Christians who John is writing to are in a bit of a crisis. A group of people have left them. Scholars call them the secessionists. They've left them over serious disputes about doctrine. They have been teaching false teaching and decided to leave and form their own group of churches. So there is division and then there is a denial of central Christian teachings. And one of those clear denials is addressed right here. They didn't believe God, that Jesus really was God come in the flesh. And by the way, if you inhabit this modern culture, that is still one of the chief obstacles many people have with Christianity. People in other religions, particularly Islam and Judaism, cannot conceive of a God lowering himself to become a human Skeptics, from a more secular perspective, have massive issues with the idea of a God even existing, and even if He does, intervening so personally into His creation in human history. So, so John starts with the elephant in the room that remains the elephant in our room in our day. He says unashamedly, Jesus really is the Word of life. He really is God come into human form. Trust me on this one. I was there. Now, the language here is important, <clears throat> but it's also tricky. I spent a couple hours trying to sort through the scholars' diverging opinions on the meaning of some of these prepositions and how to structure the exact shades of meaning of this verse. So we're going to look a little bit closely at language, learning to read our Bibles carefully, because we should. The word that I want you to look at firstly. It's the word that starts. The word that is properly translated here. It means that. What it doesn't mean is who. It's in the neuter gender. Now, that may sound boring to you, but when you read the rest of the verses, 
which we've heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon, it sounds like John is talking about Jesus because he lived with Jesus for three years, saw everything he did, heard everything he did, saw him die, saw him rise. So we would think it should be who, but he says that. Why? Well, there's probably about 100 PhDs written on this and thousands of pages. I think the best response is the one of Karen Jobes, the biblical scholar, also followed by John Stott. That is the gospel, not Jesus. The gospel which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes. Now, wait a minute. You're saying, we've seen with our eyes. We've, we've touched. That's, that's not a message. The gospel's a message. There, John's talking about a person. Yes, he is. Because the gospel is a person. And that person is the gospel. Jesus is the consummation of all the teachings that God had that comprise his gospel. He is its incarnation. He is its fulfillment. He is its terminus. He is its foundation and its final goal. It's, and, and John makes that clear. Now, John also knows what you and I know in, in a somewhat empirical society. People don't believe what's out of the ordinary. So John phrases things, I think, fairly carefully. He says, it starts with heard. We heard it. That's the message he first heard. It became something they saw. That was Jesus in the flesh, something they the word here, which we've looked upon, can also be translated, which we perceived. It doesn't, it, it doesn't quite have the same visual sight necessarily, meaning we think it means we saw and understood the significance of. We saw Jesus do the things, and then, oh, it dawned on us, what do these things mean? He really is who he says he is. And then it says, we touched. I agree with the, the scholars who think that John's talking about when, we, when he died and we had doubts and then he rose again. We went and touched him just to make sure that he'd actually risen again. The story of doubting Thomas being most prominent of those. Whether you take these phrases to mean discussing the gospel as it unfolds in the person of Jesus or the person of Jesus as he unfolds the gospel, it's one of two choices. It's like Google, Ma Google Maps or Waze, you know? They might have slightly different directions, but they start at the same point and they get you to the same point. Waze takes you through all the cooler little side streets and makes you feel like you're a real Torontonian. Actually, Gospel Maps beats it three times out of four. I've tested it. But either one gets you to this. Jesus really is who he says he is. Jesus really is the truth. John says here, we have seen Richard Bauckham, I think, is the best authority on this. He says, the we is the authoritative we. John is saying, I saw him, but I in the company of the apostles who also saw. It wasn't just me. We all saw this. And so what John is saying, I say, we saw so that you can believe that he is who he said he is. He really is the Savior. He really is the word of life. You can bank on it. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a hallucination. It was not made up. At the deepest level of human skepticism with the need for direct, empirical, see, feel, touch, because it's otherwise too incredible to believe that someone could be God in the flesh and could rise from the dead, I need really concrete 
unimpeachable proof. At that level of standard of proof, Jesus met it. He ate with them. He let them touch Him and see His wounds as the risen Savior. Early Christians, men and women, did not rewrite the facts to fit their narrative because this narrative in the time that John is writing that Jesus is actually God gets you killed. There's no benefit to telling the truth. It's a sure road to martyrdom. It would have been better if John wanted to rewrite it to fit the power dynamics of his day to say Jesus was a good teacher, an inspired rabbi, but not to say that Jesus was the divine Son of God. But John says here what we need to hear. Truth is truth. I don't care what you think your truth is. When your truth collides with the truth, your truth must submit to the truth. Facts are facts. So if you are here and you are curious about the Christian faith, I need to tell you, you are here because someone has probably invited you, but it could be because God is pursuing you. Charles Taylor is right. We live in a God-haunted world, and many of us are haunted by a longing for God even while the culture discredits Him. Julian Barnes, acclaimed writer, wrote, I don't believe in God, but I sure miss Him. He also said, at some ungodly hour, you will suddenly be pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. It is a rented world. And John is saying, it is rented, and one day you will meet God, and that idea haunts you, and you can't shake it. And what John's wanting you to say is, you are haunted by it, and you can't shake it because it's real. Steve Jobs said as cancer began to take his life, I'm actually about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. Steve Jobs now knows what he was 50-50 on. There is God. There's life after this life. Jesus revealed that all to us by coming, living, teaching, dying, and rising. So if you are here and you are investigating or curious about Christianity, I want you to realize that your soul struggles with at least three competing truths. Your truth, the truth that you want to believe, that you think will fit who you want to be and how your life wants to be. The truth that your culture tells you is true, which some of which you agree with and some of which you don't, but you feel attention. And the real, actual truth that is out there and beyond both you and the culture that only God knows. And what John is saying is, choose you this day which truth you will serve. The culture has denied God, but your longings and deepest desires know there's more meaning to this world than the arbitrary collections of atoms and events. God has revealed that deeper meaning in Jesus. Choose this day to serve Jesus because He, He is the true truth. And He, and He alone, will set you free. Christian, if you're here and you're struggling, you are not believing a lie. You're not following a myth. You didn't get sucked into a superstitious cult. Jesus really died. He really rose. He really is the Son of God.
People saw him, heard him, touched him, talked to him, ate with him. Christians are not Christians because they are born that way. Christians are who they are because Christ is who he says he is. Secondly, Christian, you need to hear that the gospel was from the beginning. Jesus made it clear that the whole Bible tells the one story of the one Savior for the one need of humanity, the need to be reconciled to God. That's the whole story of human history. The gospel which was from the beginning is true. The whole of the scriptures speak the same story. It is true. Secondly, it will save. Verse 2. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Here, John moves on from the truth of the gospel to the mission of the gospel. John says the life appeared or was made manifest, and we proclaim to you this eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest, made clear, appeared, was revealed to us. Jesus is the eternal life, and He came to give us eternal life. (laughs) Pretty simple. The Word of life appeared to give us life with God. The gospel is here to save us. The gospel is here to save sinners, and that is who we are. This is why Jesus rose from the dead. This is why Jesus came down in the first place, to live with us, to become one of us, to become one with us, so He could offer Himself up for us. Jesus came to live so that he might die, so that we who live might die and then rise. Jesus came to pay a debt. He came to forgive sins. He came to justify you and me who are sinners. He came to remake the world. He came to bring in life eternal, which he had already enjoyed with his Father. He came to bring that to us that we may share it with him. He brought heaven down to earth by bringing himself down. So this is Christianity. He really came, lived, died, and rose, and he did it to save you and me. He came came to bear our sins on his body and pay the debt that we have before God and sacrifice himself on our behalf. He took the nails for us. He took the judgment of God's sin upon of that I was our sin. He took that judgment on himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our crap. We get his clean. Why? Because he loved us. Because he felt like it. He felt like it because what he feels is infinite love. And he wanted to share that love with you and me. He wanted to be with us and now wants us to be with him. It is out of infinite love that Jesus came, lived, and died. Why did his father send him? Because his father loves us with the same love that Jesus had. And he wants his wandering children to come home. 
Why does the Spirit come into you and I when we accept Christ? Because the Spirit wants Jesus to live with you until He takes you to live eternally with Him. Implications. If you're curious about the faith, you need to know this. You can't get to God without God coming to you. You need unmerited forgiveness. You need unconditional grace. Therefore, you must humble yourself. There is only one way. And it is this way. Jesus came down to pay for your sin and unleash grace upon human people. He did not come down to give His grace to ungrateful, unhumble, proud people who said, I don't need it. He came to those who said, please give it to me. If you think you deserve eternal life because you've been a good person, you are committing the sin that perhaps most infuriates God and what makes Him want to turn His back upon you. You're committing the sin of self-righteousness. I'm good enough. I don't think there's a sin that sickens God more than that. Rooted in pride it is. It is the sin that collapses the distinction between you and God and makes you good enough for God. No, you're not good enough for God. He is holy. We're selfish and sinful. Now, Christian, if you, like me, felt like running after R.C., either because you struggle with feeling guilty about your sin or your lack of progress, and you see so many other people that seem to be doing so much better than you in the spiritual life, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Christianity. You're always going to find people that look better on the outside. You don't know what's going on on the inside. You only know you. These doubts will rise for the rest of your life, but here, here is a sure antidote. He appeared to give you eternal life. You had nothing to do with that. It was a gift. And if you had nothing to do with it, you have no way of losing it. The granting of eternal life was wholly made in the mind and heart of God. You did not gain it. It was granted. You cannot lose what you did not earn. You cannot revoke a grant of God. Only God can, and He promised He won't. John chapter 6, verse 36, as I told you, Jesus said, as I told you, you have seen me, you may not still believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of who, him who sent me, that I will lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day." gives me, given me, gives me, lose none, never drive away. That is the sure promise of God, and that is the true truth. Your truth may be that why why would God keep accepting me because I keep sinning? And I say to you, your truth must submit to God's truth. Nothing can take you from His hand. And now I want to look at why you say I don't feel adequate. God must not like me. What you are saying is my moral record disqualifies me. Now, I need to say, because the rest of the letter will say this very clearly, 
If you are giving in to sin repeatedly, not even struggling really with sin or trying to repent, that is a sign you probably aren't a Christian. True Christians strive to follow Jesus, but struggling Christians are following Jesus. Listen to what you've just said. My sin disqualifies me from continued approval of God. Do you know what you're saying? You're saying the same thing I just said to those of us who are seeking. It's my self-righteousness that qualifies me. Don't offend God. It is not your righteousness that qualifies you for standing as God's child, and it's not your righteousness that qualifies you to continue to be loved by God. It's the righteousness of someone else, Jesus Christ, which always makes you worthy of God's love because he decided to. God's grace started it. God's grace keeps you a Christian, and God's grace will bring you home. If you struggle with sin and you're increasingly frustrated by your remaining sin, that is the Christian life, and the frustration is a godly desire to be more like God. Finally, I want you to note these words. We proclaim to you the eternal life. Christians, according to John, are called to follow a pattern. John's describing it in his own life. We saw We heard, we perceived, we proclaim. What is he saying? He is saying that the end goal of maturity as a Christian is not found until you are sharing publicly your faith and bearing witness as Sean did today. What a beautiful testimony, Sean. The end goal of maturity in Christianity is not a comfortable life, men and women where you have good moral conduct, nice kids, a lot of knowledge about the Christian faith, and a comfortable home with a garage. What an idea. No. The end goal of Christianity and Christian maturity is multiplication. It is telling others about the love that has found you. It's about telling people and introducing people to Jesus. The most vibrant, I've been at this for a long time, men and women, the most vibrant, joyful, resilient, generous Christians are almost always, almost always, the ones who are openly and lovingly letting other people know about Jesus. It just is. Why? Because telling people about Jesus is a real measure of the love you've experienced from him and the love that you give back to him. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his angels, with my angels. People who love Jesus want others to know their best friend. I was talking years ago with... um, a theologian's son. We were in seminary together, and we knew this guy named Roger Hershey. He, would, he, he could just tell everyone about Jesus. It was remarkable. And I said, you've known him personally. What's the secret? He said, Dan, Jesus is just his best friend. He can't wait to tell people about him. If you're ashamed of Jesus, find the hole in your love. 
for him because something is leaking your love for him out. In our culture, that hole is almost always fear. Fear of what others will think and say, fear of losing their respect, our promotions, our comfortable life. We love our life more than we love our Lord because we haven't thought deeply enough about what our Lord has done to give us eternal life. So in all of this, keep the cross in front of you. Keep the cross in front of you when you're afraid. Let the love that Jesus has for you melt your fears and allow you the freedom to tell people about Jesus. Keep the cross in front of you when you are tempted. Nothing stops temptation better than meditating on the bleeding, agonized body of Jesus on the cross, dying, gasping for breath, for breath, willingly enduring the searing pain of crucifixion out of love for you. Nothing. You tempted to look at naked people on the internet? Meditate upon that naked man on the cross, dying out of love for you, and it will stop you in the middle of your temptation. Tempted to keep a little bit extra of that money for that thing you quietly want? Think of the one who gave his life, who left heaven for you. And your greed will lose its glitter. And generosity will rise in your soul. Keep the cross in front of you when you're tempted. And finally, keep the cross in front of you when you've failed. We'll talk about it next week. But when you have failed, remember this You'll hear it in two weeks. My dear children, I write to you so you won't sin. But if you do, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. His blood covers your sin. Keep the cross in front of you. It allows you to run to him for forgiveness faster. Finally, the gospel is true. The gospel saves and the gospel unifies. Verses 3 and 4, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so you may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy so that our joy may be complete. We'll discuss this in much greater detail, so I will just save a couple of points in introduction. Firstly, John says that the goal of the gospel is fellowship. Fellowship, firstly, with God and with Jesus. The Spirit of God brings Jesus into your hearts when you become a Christian, and you are united to God. And then secondly, it gives you koinonia, fellowship with other Christians. And that fellowship, that uniting of your heart to God's, that completes your joy because what your soul is longing for, what has made you curate your own truth, is found there. Joy is the end goal. It is the summit. Fellowship is the base camp goal that gets us to that summit. The goal of the gospel is the joy that comes from fellowship with God, union and communion with our triune loving Father, Son, and Spirit. J.I. Packer said it best, I think. He is almost always right. (laughs) And he was surely right when he said this. Justification is the foundation of the Christian life, but it is not the highest blessing. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, given the family name, 
To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by the Father is greater still. That is the epitome of joy, to see God face to face, to feel his love shining out of his eyes into your hearts. That is what we were made for, created for, recreated for, called to enjoy from now until eternity, the life of God and the soul of you and me. That's the life of joy. And can't you see Christ gives it to you? If you have God, you have joy. Now, if you have God and you don't have joy, that contradiction needs to be plunged into the depth of God's truth because you shouldn't have God without joy. You probably have a counterfeit God. You, seen a leg, you ever seen a fake handbag? I saw a fake Louis Vuitton handbag the last time I was on this, in the streets of New York City. It looks good on the outside, but it ain't the real thing. It's like 30 bucks, and I don't know. I'm with Louis Vuitton, probably 1,000 or three. The God you may... The God you think you have may look the same to others, but if there is no joy being produced, you're missing parts of the real God. You have a lens that's distorting the real God because He is the one who pours out His unconditional love unconditionally in an infinite waterfall of grace, and that should always produce joy. Joy is God's preeminent emotion, love His preeminent disposition, joy His preeminent expression of His love. When you feel Jesus come to you and His forgiveness and love washes over you and the freedom from sin's curse begins to fill you, joy starts to ooze all over you, every part of you. That's the gospel. When you know the love of the Father through the loving sacrifice of the Son, by the loving indwelling of the Spirit, love has come to town and love has set up residence in your heart. And that's the badge, men and women, of membership in this koinonia we have with other Christians. I don't care if you believe in the specific doctrines of this church. I don't care if you thought we were weird to not pour the whole thing of the bowl over him or immerse him in a big tank. I don't care if you don't hold to every single of our teachings. If you have this, the Son of God through the Spirit of God in the heart of you, you are my brother and you are my sister. We have fellowship. So if you are here and you are investigating Christianity, I tell you, deep joy awaits you and God invites you to come. Come to Jesus. Ask him to come into your heart and forgive your sin, and he will. And if you're a Christian, I'm here to tell you, this joy is yours. Every moment of every day, stop stopping it. Let it in. Finally, church, here's my prayer for us as a group of believers for 2024. One, that we would have a rock-solid assurance of the truth that Jesus really is who he said he is because he really came, lived, died, and really rose again. Two, that we would have a rock-solid assurance that Jesus has saved us by the unleashing of infinite grace through his atoning death, leading to deep assurance. Three, deep-seated joy rising in us as a result of one and two so that we commune with God. This becomes your year not of Obeying God dutifully, doing the right things, 
begrudgingly, but enjoying God freely. May 2024 be your year of enjoying God. And finally, this all results in a rock-solid desire to introduce people to Jesus. R.C. Sproul looked at me, and I poured out my heart of struggling and not feeling assured of God's love and wondering, and he stopped me. He's quite an impatient man. I said, young man, I want to ask you three questions. I said, uh, okay, but I, I said, he said, shush. Are you ready? I just want to know three things. I said, okay. One, did you accept and do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come onto this earth as a human to forgive your sins? Do you? Uh, yes. Uh, do you have any evidence, secondly, of the fruit of the Spirit and eternal, I didn't say eternal life, but the fruit of the Spirit in your life? I said, yes, I believe my sins are forgiven. I have felt His love come in. Uh, but, but, you know, I don't know that I, shh, I have a third question. Do you have any love for Jesus at all? And he kind of stuck his head right into my face. And I, and I kind of backed up and I said, well, I, I do, but that's the problem. It feels, pretty, it feels pretty fickle. And he put his hand in, he tapped my chest. He wanted to get it over with. I said, do you have any love at all? I said, yes. He said, where did it come from? And I looked at him and he looked at me. And I said, from the Spirit of God in me, right, have a good lunch. And he left. <laughs> Do I accept the rock-solid truth that Jesus is the Son of God? Have I felt the unleashing of grace and eternal life in me? He had these three points. Do I feel united to God because His Spirit has told me I'm God's child? Yes. Right. Let's go to lunch. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can lunch with you now because we're yours. You really are who you said you are. You really saved us as you said you would and did. And you really sent your spirit in us. We have the truth. We have experienced the grace and we are united to you. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. We don't have any time for questions because I've gone on too long. That's quite all right. Let's rise and respond in song.